Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. of the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today is my good friend Nate Tice. Nate, how you doing, buddy? Doing very well. We are December 1st. Oh my goodness. I know. I know. We are the home stretch, the final third of the season. No, I am doing very, very well. Again, your your globe trotting ways of doing this show it continues. Uh, I'm in New York City uh, <laughs> yeah. for work, and the tree at Rockefeller Center, they lit it yesterday, is my understanding. This was very trafficy, but a symbol that we are in December, that the season yes. is upon us. So we have a lot yeah. to dig into today because it feels it was like, like the, the Rockefeller NFL... concert or whatever, right? I, I think I, it I was think raining. I, I don't know like what yeah. actually happened. I just know my Uber <laughs> driver was like, "Ah, it's very trafficy because the tree's being lit today." I was like, "Great!" <laughs> oh, so getting from LaGuardia is a disaster. <laughs> oh, I bet. So we have a lot to dig into today. Week thirteen is full of some amazing games. We're going to talk about a bunch of them today. We're also going to chat with Kaylin Keller from the Athletic. Obviously, Deshaun Watson is returning this week. He's returning against the Texans. Kaylin wrote about Deshaun Watson's return a little bit. Earlier this week on The Athletic. So later in the show, she's going to join us to just chat about the conversation around Deshaun Watson, how we're going to talk about Deshaun Watson moving forward because he's back and this is something that we have to discuss. It's time. So Kaylin's going to join us. Really appreciated her time. But before we do that, we are going to dig into the slate of games we've got in week 13 and we are going to start with a doozy. The Miami Dolphins and the San Francisco 49ers there's like 20 layers to this thing. I mean, where do you want to start? It t- it's tempting to me to go with the McDaniel Shanahan. Like these teams know each other extremely well. They share yeah. a lot of DNA. Like a lot of Raheem Mostert and Jeff Wilson are there. There's a lot of well-tread territory between these two teams in terms of player movement already. I, I love that. I love kind of, you know, the former pupil going against the guy who yeah. has been his guy forever. That aspect of this is very enjoyable. Yeah, and it's different than what for years and years and years when we'd see Belichick after Belichick guy, Belichick after Belichick guy, and then they just yes. get their asses handed to him by Belichick. Yes. This is more like, oh, this feels actually more like a fair fight. Like they actually, you know, this is a good offshoot brand. It's not knockoff. It's more of a, you know, it's Pepsi and Coke, I guess. I don't know if that's knockoff. That was a terrible analogy. I think we'll it's like a, it. it's like a band member leaving and starting ah. his own band and it being really good. You know, like for that. whatever reason, I'm who, trying to who, think of a good example. The of guy that. that left Metallica um, and did uh, Dave uh, Mustaine. Yeah, I, know, I think that I think that the Dolphins are better than Megadeth well, that, or Jason okay. New, Jason Newstead. What, what, which one are you talking about here? I, I it, was, it was Megadeth. It was Megadeth. That's what I was thinking of. I, I figured I was lobbing it up for you right there, but <laughs> maybe I knew. By the you way, knew. Dave Mustaine was kicked out of Metallica yes, for drinking too much, which is hard to do when you're in Metallica. So I think Mike McDaniel's doing just fine on his he own. Is. Also, there's a Javarius Ward versus Tyreek Hill, former you know Chiefs teammates. Yeah, that's a good yeah, one. That's, that's, a that's very another good one. matchup. Oh man, we got a whole whole bunch of these. I know. I'm trying to. I really am trying to think of a good one, but uh, no. It, um, maybe it's Paul McCartney starting the wings. 
Like, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. But that, but the Beatles still exist. I, I mean, I guess if we want to really take this to the furthest extent, everyone did leave Kyle Shanahan. Like he's yes. kind of just John Lennon now. The entire rest of the band left him. Every single other st- coach on his staff. So Jimmy G I, is Yoko Ono. <laughs> we're doing a great job with this. The show's this r- on the rails so this far. Is great. All right. I football wise where i want to start with this is with a fantastic matchup between the dolphins offense against the niners defense niners have one of the best defenses in football playing at an extremely high level we know that the dolphins have been the best offense in the nfl over the first 12 weeks of the season they are absolutely rolling simple question that goes beyond this game but with a complicated answer if you were game planning for the miami dolphins offense right now what would you do Because so far, nothing that NFL teams have tried over the first two-thirds of the season has even almost worked. Yeah, and I I was talking to you about this, was that the team that actually had the plan that I actually liked the most was the Lions, even though they got shredded, uh, which is they were trying to double Tyreek and make Tua find the other one-on-one matchup. And when you have Jalen Waddle, that's a pretty good one-on-one matchup to find. Or running two-man. Um, not a lot of teams have run it, and I think that's less the best way to go about it. But the thing is, the 49ers haven't run a snap of two man this entire season. The 49ers run what they run. Yes. Um, and then on top of that is, you know, you want to, Tua is a fantastic pre-snap processor. And actually, maybe I even have not credited him enough as a post-snap processor. But he is like, if you change the picture on him, you can maybe confuse him where he was like, he thinks he has a seam open and it's actually, no, there's two linebackers sitting there. You can catch him a couple times with that. So that is mugging up the defense. That is just changing what the, uh, what your post snap picture is. But again, the 49ers run what they run. They show quarters, then they run quarters. They show three buzz and with our safety rotating down, that's what they're going to run. Third down, they're, they do do some, you know, pressure looks, uh, but they just sprinkle that in. That's not really their uh, bread and butter. But I'm this off. I, I think this offense does what they do, and this defense does what they do. And I really, am, I like that when teams don't really blink. They're just like, we know what we're going to do, so stop us. Um, and that's what the 49ers do. Uh, that's what it's been a trademark of. You know, now uh, with Ryan's there, but it was Sala before, and all those guys with maybe some Seahawk background uh, from the Legion of Boom days. You know. Ryan's is kind of a different from that, but you know, he has some DNA there is they run what they run. They're just like, Hey, we have good players. We're going to let them play fast. And we have this guy named Fred Warner manning the middle that I think can muck it up against Tua. Digging through some of the numbers here. I think this is worth talking about a little bit later in the season when we're talking about a team that maybe as game plan, more game planning than the Niners are going to be. But yeah. It really doesn't matter what teams have done against them this year. I'm thinking the, over the last four games, teams have played man coverage on like 10% of snaps which is one of the lowest rates in the entire NFL. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, man, should teams play more, play more man, just be willing to do it and willing to kind of live and die by it, even though you're terrified of Hill and Waddle. But you look at it, 0.29 EPA per drop back against man coverage this year, 0.34 against zone. He's dicing yeah. up whatever you do against him. Okay. You can't blitz him too. Like can't, you can't really thing. blitz him. And no. the, I was like, all right, so what about some drop eight stuff? You know, yeah. it's funny because we're going to talk about this a little bit when we talk about the Bengals and the Chiefs. Yes. It's almost like there's a Tyreek defense. So yeah. some of the stuff that the, that the teams did against the Chiefs last year, which in the AFC championship game, it's like, should teams adopt some of those ideas maybe against the Dolphins, even though it's a different team because Tyreek Hill was the one carryover? Yes. Against drop eight this year. Tua Tagovailoa is 20 of 23 for 260 yards. He's averaging 11 yards per attempt. 
He's averaging over 10 air yards per attempt with the fastest time to throw in the entire NFL. Yeah. When teams drop eight against him. You want to put it, flood the coverage? We'll just throw it over the top. <laughs> it's, it is wild. And it is. the one thing I'll say, and again, I think this is a bigger conversation for a, a more specific game plan against a team that might be willing to do some of this stuff, like the right. Bengals are a good example. Yes. The Bengals yeah. didn't do a ton of it when they played in week four, but I think that when we get deeper into the year, yep. if a team's trying to throw a change up, they're one of those teams. When yep. teams drop eight against the Dolphins, they're playing almost exclusively zone. Okay. Right. It's like 75%. When the Bengals were doing all that drop eight stuff against the Chiefs last season in the AFC Championship game specifically. Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> half man coverage. Yep. Okay. So yep. they're really trying. It's a lot of yep. double double. Like we're going to put, yep. we're going to double, double your two best receivers and then we're yep. going to have extra bodies in coverage and we're going to hope things get home and hope that's enough to muck it up for you. Yep. So I want to see a team do that to them later. This is not the team. The it's Niners not. are going to rely on. What they do and the matchup advantages that they theoretically have. And I think those yes. matchup advantages really shine in two different places, right? Yeah. Nick Bosa has been absolutely Incredible. insane this season. Incredible. Okay. His counting stats, his pressure rates, everything is near the top of the NFL. The one I wanted to throw out that was bonkers when I looked it up with Nick Bosa on the field this season. The Niners are averaging on defense 0.1 EPA per dropback. That would be third in the NFL. Without him, they're 20th. With, when he's on the field, they have a 38.4% pressure rate, which I believe is the highest or second highest in the league with the Cowboys. Mm-hmm. When he's not on the field, it's 23.4%, which would be in the bottom third of the NFL. He has been an absolute oh, game wrecker, and Teron Armstead is probably not going to play in this game. So yes. if we're trying to stack up some matchup advantages personnel-wise that the Niners might have, that's where I'm going to start mine. Absolutely. They, that is the weakness of the Dolphins team. And Tua, that, when I wrote in my article uh, this week, the 30s article for the awards, bring it down to it. It's like, yes, he gets you know a lot of free looks with Mike McDaniel dialing up some great stuff, but he mitigates the biggest weakness of the Dolphins offense, which is their offensive line, and especially the interior who get their asses kicked over and over. That's why they're not great running the ball consistently. And actually, the 49ers are fantastic defending the run. I think they're yes. first in DVOA. Um, but then the other matchup, the other defensive player of the year candidate that the 49ers have is Fred Warner, who, uh, I mean, is just incredible to watch. And you I think that's sh- even more interesting because yes. they get rid of the ball so quickly that you yep. can mitigate a dominant edge rusher. But yes. what the Dolphins want to do and where Fred Warner exists is a completely overlapping circle. It's it's strength versus strength. Nobody yes. throws over the middle more than Tua. From 10 to 22 yards, he throws a quarter of his pass attempts are 10 to 22 yards between the numbers. The next highest is Marcus Mariota at 15%. Both play action heavy offenses that take advantage of moving up and down the linebacker. But the thing is, Fred Warner, who also leads all linebackers and passes deflected, but the other thing is what you want to relate him to. I, I've been trying to compare him to Rudy Gobert in the sense that he might not always get blocks, but he stifles a lot. Yeah. The, the yeah. stifle tower. That's yeah. a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, it's like sh- yeah. Your field goal percentage at the rim against the Niners is not very good. Exactly. So from six to 15 yards, because the 49ers love playing quarters, which is puts Fred Warner, who's moving up and down and covering all the high lows. So against all other opponents, so all the 49ers opponents, when they played all other teams or when Fred Warner was on the field, their passing success rate over the middle of the field, 6 to 15 yards, was 63.2%. Their EPA per attempt was 0.4, which is 
better than what uh, Tua is throwing this season. This is better yeah, he's than what three. Yeah, yeah, Mahomes is throwing this season. When Warner, when Warner's on the field, when they play against Fred Warner, they throw in that area six to fifteen yards between the numbers. Their passing success rate is forty five percent, which is about Daniel Jones level. So they, t- Fred Warner, if you attack this area where Fred Warner lives, this realm, his lair of the middle of the field. You, he turns quarterbacks into uh, Daniel Jones, which is pretty insane. Their EPA per attempt in that area is 0.08. Like it's, he is insane what he does over the middle. And the other thing, now we're just talking about Fred Warner, is the other linebackers that the 49ers have. And this is an advantage for them is that the Dolphins love being a 21 with Alec Ingold and they want the defense to match with heavy bodies and then they take advantage of it. Just get them over the top. Speed. We beat them with speed as you have heavier bodies on there. The 49ers have the best linebacker group in, in the NFL. Dre yes. Greenlaw, Aziz, Aziz Al Shazir, who is healthy. They're all healthy right now. And they play with speed. They're not your typical plugging linebackers. They can run and cover. That's the strength of this team. So they're the second best defense out of base defense in the entire NFL. So that is their fine. It's strength versus strength. And it's I think it's gonna be so cool to watch. How Mike McDaniel kind of navigates that. He's with, been with these defenders. He does what they're good at. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious what their steps are going to be to mitigate that. I'm wondering if they're going to show some pressure looks and maybe bail out. Just like yep. how they might change what the picture looks like pre-snap in ways that we don't often, we don't always see from the 49ers. Right. I'm also wondering, even if they're not playing a ton of man, how physical are they going to get on the outside? Like if yeah. they're going to play a bunch of quarters, is Ward going to be able to kind of toss Tyreek Hill around Try a little bit and be up. willing to and just kind of disrupts the timing on some of this stuff? Because that's one of those things is even if it's zone coverage, it's not passive zone coverage when no. you're playing against the Niners. No. So what they end up doing and what sort of style they want to play on the outside, yeah. I think is going to be really fun to watch. It is. All right. On the other side of the ball, even if the Dolphins put up a decent amount of points and they kind of keep the Niners defense on the run like they've done to everybody else. I feel like the Niners offense is probably going to be able to keep pace here. I don't know how you feel about it. I think the exact same thing. Uh, you know, CMC being banged up is a little worrisome. It's, and then, yeah, it, it is such a huge is, thing. I mean, just because of what they've been able to do with dictating matchups since he's been in there, removing him from the equation, even if you still have Debo, IU, Kittle, yep. uh, I think it's a really big deal, especially with Mitchell potentially missing the game as yes. well. That's what it is. If Eli Mitchell was healthy, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, they're fine. He, he's still a good player. Uh, but the the thing is, this is when we talk about strength versus strength on the other side of the ball. This is a strength versus weakness. Same thing. 49ers love being a 21 personnel with juice check. Trying to get the defensive match with base. The Dolphins are rough out of base personnel. Rough, especially against the pass. And what have we noticed with this 49ers team? Yes, CMC helped. Was how awesome they've gotten at dropping back and passing. Like they're not... It's not your your father's Shanahan offense with a lot of nakeds and bootlegs. It's dropping back, getting guys on islands, and just attacking you. And so I think I do think they'll be able to keep up because they've kind of this is the best Jimmy G has been dropping back. This is the kind of the coolest and most spread out I've seen this Shanahan offense be as opposed to being so heavily play action. So I actually think they, in a way, have good answers. So I do think this is going to be you know a barn burner on that side of the ball. I think they're going to have they're going to be able to put up some points. Yeah, I mean, it's watching them really exist in the dropback game. And I want to say he's like third in the NFL in EPA per true dropbacks this season, which, which is, is a big crazy for him. He was last year. Yep. The number overall, the numbers aren't that different from what we've seen from him in the past. Yep. He's been a top 10 quarterback yards per attempt, advanced metrics, a lot of that yep. kind of stuff. But the areas where he's really succeeded this year are a little bit different, even if a lot of those efficiency numbers is driven by how much yak is created within the right. offense. But there's still little tiny differences between who they are now and who they've been over the last couple of years. And again, 
how does that familiarity play into the way right. the Dolphins play on defense? Like Mike McDaniel has a ton of institutional knowledge of how the yeah. Niners want to play. So how does that impact the Dolphins defensive game plan? Ton of different things to consider yeah. here, but uh, I am very much looking forward to this one. I think that uh, it could be one of, one of the more just enjoyable entertaining yep. games of the entire year i think there can be a lot of points and you know we're gonna have a ton of stuff to break down when we chat yes. about this on sunday night i can tell you that right now yeah. this one's got right. layers <laughs> it certainly does all right <laughs> let's get to our next one here chiefs and Bengals rematch of the afc championship game i i guarantee you that the bank or the chiefs have had this one circled yes. from the moment that the schedule came out after how their season ended last year so let's revisit that game a little bit we talked so much about what that game plan looked like from Cincinnati against that Chiefs team where they really caught them flat-footed, especially mm-hmm. in the second half. They dropped eight on 18 dropbacks against Patrick Mahomes in that game. He finished 7 of 14 for 33 yards and four sacks on those 18 dropbacks. They just had no answer. None. And so now I'm wondering two things. Do the Bengals think that is a game plan for the Chiefs or was that a game plan for a Tyreek Hill version of a Chiefs team? And two, after doing that the way that they did in the AFC Championship game last year, is it one of those I know what you know what I know things and they say, eh, we're going to go away from that and play a different style because if they've game planned for that all offseason or they expect us to do that, maybe we show something a little bit different. I will say the Bengals do lead the NFL in drop eight dropbacks this season on defense. They've 37 of them. They're very good when they do it because they do it from a bunch of different alignments. They'll be mugged up and they'll drop eight. Instead of just dropping both linebackers out, they'll drop three guys out. They do a lot of interesting stuff up front. So how the Bengals approach this and whether or not it's something the Chiefs are ready for and have planned for, I think is the biggest question heading into this. And even if they did forget, the Bills reminded them, like, hey, yes. you guys, you guys, this because the Bills got after them a little bit with the same thing. The end game and a pick came on this. And I think, too, is it was not only a Tyreek stopper, it's a Travis Kelsey stopper. Because this is when Trey Flowers had, when he was so useful, they'd be in dime personnel and he would just be basically beating the crap out of Kelsey <laughs> with a safety over the top. Because, like you said, you brought up with the Dolphins example. It's not like they're playing zone out of it. They're doing two man and robber. And yep. that is just... That's an extra set of eyes, not only on Mahomes, but it's also on just whatever crossers you want to do. The thing that got the Chiefs offense, and this was my frustration at the end of the year last year, was they were just running so many RPOs, just stick RPO, stick RPO, stick RPO. And Mahomes, I think, kind of got a little lazy with it in that he would just throw it to Hill or Kelsey and just you know let them go to work when they'd have these juicy run looks, like light box run looks. But... The difference for Mahomes this year and why he's been on an absolute warpath this year is that he's willing to hand the ball off. It's funny that actually handing the ball off on these RPOs helps him throw the ball down the road because he actually keeps the defense honest. So when you watch this team, especially last week against the Rams, was that there's a couple times when the Rams were or the Chiefs were running their RPOs and the Rams, you know, they the Rams were giving him looks that where he could have thrown the RPO and he was still handing the ball off and they were getting five, six yards a pop. Um, the other thing too, and this is just the difference of this Chiefs team, is we've talked about is the 13 personnel that they've run. Um, and they're they're getting more and more to it. This last game against the Rams was the first time that the Chiefs ran more personnel than 11 personnel or other personnel groupings than 11 personnel. Interesting. It was the majority. And then the Chargers was almost the exact same thing. So I had it broken down. Yeah, okay. So they they went 12 personnel 
43% of their plays, 31 plays. They were in 11 personnel on 30 plays. They were in 13 personnel on 11 plays. And then against the Chargers, they're in 11 personnel on half the snaps. They were in 12 and 13 personnel on 29 of the snaps. That is a big difference from the Chiefs team last year, which was just lived in light boxes and spread formations or light boxes, spread formations and light personnel groupings. And the other thing, too, that I just have to because I looked up these numbers, I got to share them. I'm going to just spew them all out vomiting right here (laughs) is that the Chiefs have been running a lot of counter this year and not only just running counter, but since the bye week, they ran count. They've run counter 34 times this year. Last year, they ran it 39 times the entire season. Since the bye week, they've run it on 21% of their snaps. Before the bye week, they ran it 12% of their snaps. They're leaning into it. Yeah. And why that matters is the Bengals love to play in bare and odd fronts. So counter is very good against that. It's almost like they can figure this offense to go, we're not letting the Bengals do what they did to us last year. That is kind of what this seems like. They actually are finding answers against other teams. They've been experimenting. Like we said last week against the Rams, they're toying with their food. Like they were just... It seemed like they were just like, yeah, we're going to try this out this game. Uh, Noah Gray and Fortson out there. Yeah, Kelsey's not on the field. And guess what? They passed all four times they did that. Like They're just really trying to like tweak what they got. So I'm really excited to see what they lean into in this game. Recording this episode during rush hour in Manhattan was an interesting decision (laughs) as we get into urban (laughs) podcasting here. So the running element of this, these numbers are shocking. Okay. So I just looked this up. DJ Reader comes back last week. Yes. The Bengals are fantastic against the Titans. The Titans run game is better in reputation than in practice right now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. their offensive line is in tatters. Ben Jones didn't play last week. I mean, they're really missing some physicality up front. Yeah. But this season, when DJ Reader has been on the field, this comes with a normal caveat. On off stats are not there's no causation. Okay. There are a lot of different contextual factors that you have to take into account. I'm gonna say them anyway because they're fun. When he is on the field, the Bengals have a defensive rush success rate of 75%. Okay. That is, would be number one in the league by a comfortable margin. Okay. The Titans lead the league right now at 69%. When he is off the field, they're at 56.2%, which ranks 27th in the NFL. So when he's on the field, they are the best run defense in the league. When he's not on the field, they're the 27th best run defense in the league. Again. Other factors may contribute yeah. to that, but, but there's something happening there. And when you watch the way he played last week, it's right. not surprising. He is right there with, I mean, just name your guys. Some of the guys like Titan, like Jeffrey Simmons, the way that he's playing the run. Yep. Reader is arguably the most important, impactful yep. run defender in the NFL right now. And if he can play, you change the way that you can devote resources, the way that you can play if you're Cincinnati. So that idea of, well, if they're going to play like this, we're just going to run the ball down their throats. That becomes more difficult when readers play in the way that he is. And I also, this is really fun. When you watch how defenses stay relevant over the years, because we know defensive success typically isn't sticky, right? So one of the reasons that you can maintain success defensively is that different guys step up. Your, right. your best players become different players, and that helps push off regression. The best example of this, and I've used it all the time, is this Legion of Boom Seahawks teams. Yeah. Right? Like yep. there was a moment where Errol Thomas is the best player on their defense. Then yes. it's Richard Sherman. Then it's right. Bobby Wagner. Then there's a year where Michael Bennett is just lighting the league on fire. And the one guy that I keep coming back to on the Bengals right now that I think is most different now than he was even at the end of last season is Jermaine Pratt. 
Yeah. Like the way that he is playing the run and the way that he is affecting the game, that's it's really cool to see that within individual units. And yep. what Cam Taylor Britt has given them with a Wouzier out, like the fact that they've been able to maintain this level of success with some kind of rising and falling prominent players is very right. is it's neat to watch. So I think that's something to consider again why they're playing the run so well. It's a lot of reader, but there are other guys that have gotten better yeah. in that area as well. And Hubbard, they they this that whole defense and this is why I love repeat matchups is because especially with the same staffs. So like that's what's I that's what's awesome when teams kind of stay good cuz you know if you're the one seed and the one seed in your division you're going to play each other next year no matter what. I love that because then you get to see what tweaks every team makes yeah. and which players play better. That's what's always really fun with the NFL. And what's another thing, it was kind of felt like deja vu watching using Titans film for the Bengals defense as they're about to play the Chiefs. And I remember last year, I was like, oh, God, you can't use any of this because it's the Chiefs. I could finally actually use this because what the Titans were trying to do was they were getting in heavier personnel, but they're going empty and spreading it out. They were trying to make the Bengals match with big personnel and then try and spread it out. Did it always work? No, but, you know, at least they were trying to be creative with it. But the thing is, is that the Chiefs run that 13 personnel looks with Fortson and Nora Gray or with Travis Kelsey. So I'm curious. They actually probably can use some of this. And I'm, I want, I want to know what they lean into out of that. It's an awesome, I love this matchup. Like, uh, again, I, I can't sing the Bengals praises enough, but also, you know, the Chiefs, like keep being the Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes still being Patrick Mahomes. And the last thing I want to bring up and is the, Okay, so I just brought up the odd front and the bare front stuff was, okay, what what happens how they run the ball out of light boxes or, or light personnel groupings? And the Chiefs also are now experimenting with a, uh, a center tight end counter, which I actually thought is what the Ravens would use a bit more with Linderbaum. Yeah. So why they did it is because now you don't have the usually, – usually counter is a guard and a tight end. That is a typical off-ball tight end. That is like what counter looks like. It's two pullers going weak side. It's a counter play. It's a counter punch. And the center variation is kind of cool because it changes the angles. And what the Bengals like to do is being a rush front, which is two, three techniques. So now you have the guard blocking out as opposed to the center trying to reach all the way out there. And now you have Creed Humphrey pulling with a tight end. Is Travis Kelsey a great pulling blocker? No, but it it gets you some nice angles and good looks. They ran it like two or three times against the Rams. And I thought that was interesting because I think that translates to this week. So I, 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 it's awesome. I, I think this matchup is going to be really, really fun. It's going to be another game, I think, on Sunday that we spent about a half hour talking about because I think there's going to be just some really cool stuff. The guy, One other guy you mentioned that I think is worth throwing out here again, Trey Flowers was important to the matchup last yes. year. I mean, what he can do to Kelsey and man coverage. Here's the when Kelsey he's at when he's on the field this year, they run yeah. man coverage 40% of the time. It's what like, he's it, out there to do. It's a pretty good tell. I mean, That's when he's out there, and, and I, it's always when I see that stuff, it's like, all right, let me make sure that there's not something else going on. Like he's right. always out there on third down. When he's out there on first down, they run man coverage like 45% of the time. So it's a tell, but it, it's, it's yeah. okay because they're so good when they do it and because and, he's so effective in it. And they're top 10 in dime rate. So it's actually, it's still going to translate to this year. So it's it makes like, total yeah, sense. Okay. yeah, it does. And I it think that they'll see sense. that. You know, he played, he only played nine snaps in the, in the ASA championship game last year. It seems like he was like all over the field. He played like nine 40 snaps. plays. Yeah. Yes. And so, but those nine snaps become really important because a lot of yes. them are on third down and they're not afraid to play man coverage against this team. They weren't afraid to do it last year when no one was doing it, but now right. everyone's doing it. So Luana Rumo is one of those coaches now where I want to see 
what his plan is yes. for the best offenses in the league. Yes. Every time they play, I'm like, what's he going to do? Because yep. I think he probably has one of the best plans. Yep. Like, that is where he's at right now as a defensive game planner. So yep. I cannot wait to see it's, what that looks it's, like. It's totally different than, and I'm not, we're not like saying that's good or bad. It's like totally different than the 49ers discussion. 49ers yep. run quarters and three buzz and a couple pressures. That is what they run. The Bengals run everything. Like they, they change it. Like that's what's so cool. It's he's one of the best game plan coaches in the in the league at any uh, offense or defense. And I agree. I agree. He's become one of my more favorite watches of any kind of like game plan coaches. And one of the things now that they can do, I was talking to him in training camp, and the continuity that they have said right. we're going to get to a place this year where we're going to be able to run stuff we didn't even practice during the week. Because right. we right. feel so comfortable with, with the guys. Yeah. That, and maybe now it's a little bit different with Taylor Britt out there. But I still think that that ability where you have guys that are so entrenched in the defense and have played with each other to such an extent in the back seven. I mean, most of these guys outside of one outside corner, they've stayed relatively healthy. And yep. they know each other at this point. They know yep. what they're trying to do. So if you can in the middle of a game just be like, all right, we're, we're going to tweak this. Like, mm-hmm. you know how many teams and defenses have the ability to do that where they didn't even practice it all week? It's very rare. Right. Like, you just don't see that very often. And I think that they've gotten to a place now where they're comfortable doing something like that. Yeah. All right. Let's get to the other side of the ball very quickly here. Jamar Chase is back. And <laughs> right. we're already excited about where the Bengals offense is and where, how they've played over the last yep. month or so. And that hasn't really included him. So I still feel like they're rolling. They're one of the best offenses in the league. They've been one of the best offenses in the Mm -hmm. league this season. The version of it is more sustainable. Mm -hmm. And now they're getting back one of the most explosive players in football. So we could be in for a little bit of a fireworks show on Sunday, I think. I think so, too. And it's the Chiefs defense is way better than it was last year, but it's still not like great. Like, you know, it's fine. It's fine. fine. And, you know, and Spags is when we talk about game plan coaches, he's one of the better ones. But, you know, we are still in week 13. We're not, you know, we're not in January yet. Uh, But, you know, Nick Bolton and Willie Gay are much, you know, are playing well, I think. And I think also, you know, having Reed back there as opposed to Tyron Matthew jumping at Chase's shoelaces. I'm never going to stop bringing that up because it's actually hilarious watching like Tyron Matthew chew, <laughs> like choose, what do they say? Choose violence, choose non-violence. Yeah, choose, yeah, non-violence. He, <laughs> choose non-violence. And so that's, you know, he was the peace course. Like that, that is what kind of what he did. So I, it's also nice to get McDuffie back and have him oh, be, yes. back, be a part of this. And the Carl fact Loftus that they're getting a little bit stuff. closer yep. to health and Carl Loftus had one of his better games of the yep. season last He's week. coming along. You could do that against this version of the Rams offensive line, but it was still right. nice to see him pop and, a little bit. And that's what I was going to say is that they're doing the Chiefs defense is better, but then the the ba- improvement of the Bengals offense is better. Like, and now they're getting chased back. So it's that is kind of the that, they both have an uptick, but it's it's going to be it's going to be interesting because this Bengals team, as we keep emphasizing, it's not as reliant as explosive plays and a way to get after a Spags defense and a Chiefs defense is yes, hit those explosive plays when he gives it to you, but punch him in the mouth or jab him in the mouth over and over and over. And that's what this Bengals team does so much better this year than last year. All right. That's all we got. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back with a couple specific side of the ball matchups. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily with 24 seven us based live customer service from discover Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. We got an unbelievable matchup, heavyweight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baby. My friend used to have a Dickie V alarm clock. So it'd be like, that sounds terrible. It'd be like, rise and shine. Like, it <laughs> sounds it's awful. It's like those people. Have you heard the the iPhone one that's like church bells ringing? It's like, oh my God. Like, how I never understand how people ever have their ringer on, like, constantly. I understand sometimes when it's like, oh, I'm away from my phone, but like, constantly just have like, bling, like, and as they're typing, texting, oh, oh, just drive me insane. Sorry. Even Casey's alarm is unnecessarily violent and i just i never understand it it comes out in the morning i'm like what are you doing are you like trying to antagonize me before this day even starts <laughs> just seeing red as you wake up <laughs> goodness gracious all right we got two matchups that we want to dig into this week first one eagles offense against the titans defense i mean this yeah. really kind of boils down to the eagles run game against the titans run defense that's, i mean this it. is strength on strength as as strong as you can get yeah. The Titans lead the league and run defense success rate even after a mixed game, I guess, against the Bengals last week. The final mm-hmm. numbers for Cincinnati were okay. It's not like they pushed the Titans around. I no. think missing Danico Autry nice is a part of this, which we'll get yeah. into because he may not play this week either. So they have, and they're also, I think, depending on which version of EPA you look at, they're first or second in EPA allowed per rush. On the other side of the ball, the Eagles are number one in success rate on the ground. They're number one in EPA per rush. They have the yep. best run game in the NFL. So we've got some real slobber knocker potential between yeah. the fronts of these two teams playing against each other on Sunday. Yeah, it's it's I know it's like there's one little chess match, but the rest is just this is a heavyweight fight. It's gonna be awesome. Uh, the thing is, Jason Kelsey, and again, hyping up my 30s award again. I gave him offensive lineman of the year so far because I think this is the best ball he's been playing. Making up awards now, you're a true media member. I had to. It's like such a, like a hipster thing where it's like I watch line play, so here's my nominees for best lineman. Like so, but the one weakness with Jason Kelsey because he's you know, he's light. He's a former fullback is that, you know, big, heavy defense alignment can kind of get after him a little bit. They mitigate it in a lot of ways, get him on the move. They'll adjust their zone stuff, let, let him wipe coverage or wipe block, all that stuff, get him out in space. 
White black is when you, the center kind of does a little fold where fold, he's yeah. he, where he's not he, around he's coming around. Yeah, yeah. So don't get him on a double team where you can get knocked back and everything. So, but the thing is, he's going against not only Jeffrey Simmons, who's playing like an all pro and is just a ass kicking defense alignment, but Tier Tart, his bash brother in the interior, both <laughs> physical. I, I, that's what I'm going to keep calling him. It's Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco. Like that's what these two are in the middle, and they. I think that's this is they actually match up well against it because the Eagles. They'll do some zone read stuff, um, and, you know, some you know slide block with RPO and and get the tight end out in space as well to like lead for Jalen Hurts. But they like to run at you. They do duo really well. They they like to just blunt force you right up the right up the shoot. Um, but the Titans are fine with that. And on top of that, they have David Long, who reads the game extremely well, and he stays clean because their defense alignment are so good. So he stays clean, can read it well. So I think we usually hear chess match. Between like what Fred Warner and Tua, we hear the ch- chess match in the passing game. This is a chess match between run defense and a quarterback that runs the ball. Like I actually think it's going to be really interesting to watch David Long and how he's going to read and react to this game. And w- if you want to understand how, why this matters, watch the Eagles against the Jaguars earlier this year. And w- this is why Devin Lloyd is no longer playing. Th- that was the start of it. This Because watch what the Eagles did to Devin Lloyd and watching a rookie linebacker go, Oh God, where do I go? And there, <laughs> there's Miles Sanders. There's there's uh, Jalen Hurts out in space. This is the opposite. This is a smart and physical Titans defense that I think is going to be a really fun matchup. Watching what the Colts did to the Eagles a couple weeks ago, where they have a really sound plan for how to defend all of those read option plays, where it's yep. we're going to crash down, we're going to force him to keep the ball, and we're going to yep. scrape over the top. And I don't know. I would assume, based on the success that the Colts had, that the Eagle or the Titans are going to have a similar plan. But it's again, it goes back to that Luan Rumo thing. I want to see what the Titans' plan is yep. for the Eagles' run game. Like, what yep. is our best answer for how they're running the ball right now and how they create numbers for themselves? So right. it's a really, really good one. Again, the Danico Autry side of this worth considering because yep. what he can do on the edge as a 270 pound defensive end and just controlling one end of the line of scrimmage is huge in the Titans' ability to defend the run, and there is a chance he may not play again this week. Yeah, and that's this Titans' defense. We've talked about it. They like to push the pocket and, and push, push, push on the quarterback. Jalen Hurts takes advantage of a lot as if one defender messes up their pass rush lane and doesn't keep contained, he punishes it over and over, usually going to his right. It's it's really funny. He's like Zoolander. Going to his left, he's just like, he like can't throw the ball going to his left. It's really strange. <laughs> but it's funny. You can look at the stats, watch the eye test. He's completed like two balls when he scrambles to his left. It's really funny. But going to his right, he's devastating. And usually it's because how many of these defenses have these guys with their ears pinned back Oh, I'm getting after. I'm getting past Lane Johnson. And then they lose their pass rush contain. And then up and out, there goes Jalen Hurts. This is the opposite. The Titans defense has none of those guys. They have no. Mario Edwards on the outside. They have Bud Dupree. They are just, they push, 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 condense space. So I think it's going to be really interesting. It's kind of like they have some answers to this Eagles offense that's very good. So I, I'm really curious how this matchup ends up because, I it, again, it's another strength versus strength matchup. All right. Let's get to our next one here. The Vikings offense against the Jets' defense. A lot of stuff to dig into here. Yeah. And the Vikings had their best offensive game of the season last week against the Patriots. When you went back and you watched that one, what do you feel like you can take away from a step the Vikings have taken, something schematically? Like, why do you think we're seeing the best version of the Vikings' offense right now? It's they not only because of TJ Hawkinson's there, what 
having TJ Hawkinson does is now they're the Vikings are using 12 personnel more than ever, which makes a ton of sense. From weeks 9 to 12, they're using it 20% more of their snaps. And then last week against the uh, against the Patriots, they were in pro personnel, which is 21 or 12, on 41% of their snaps against the Patriots. Wow. Which is a huge contrast from what this offense was doing in the first eight weeks, which is like, oh, we're going to be Diet Coke Rams and run 11 have KJ. Another thing. Another thing that we talked about is that spent all this time trying to figure out Justin Jefferson in the Cooper Cup role. KJ Osborne is in the Cooper Cup role because he's you just use him as a F tight end on the backside of blocks over and over and over. <laughs> which I thought I was like, oh man, I wasted all I wasted so much digital ink on that. So uh, we all uh, did. We all I did. Know. There, there's nothing wrong with that. I, no no I shame, LSU man. clips, like you know, like, oh, look at Jefferson as the point man in bunch. It's like there's KJ Osborne doing all that. But it makes sense. Justin Jefferson's really fucking good so it makes sense to just have him as an x receiver and move him around a little bit but the one thing i noticed was the uh i almost call them the ramps the vikings were loving getting into this balance formation which when i say balance a two by two formation and they were using both tight ends johnny munt and, and johnny Hawkinson. Munt, yes yes off ball I, I i didn't have it written down so i was like okay what's his name <laughs> off ball and or they would do that eleven personnel with KJ Osborne as basically a second tight end, and they were running tempo, and they were making the Patriots match with base defense, and that's why I think this is really really interesting is because the Jets defense when they are in base defense with four DBs is when I say base sub is five DBs or more, they're twenty third in base defense by EPA on first and second down. They match if you're in twelve or twenty one, they match with base defense, and they're not that good out of it. And why that matters even more. They are extremely good out of sub personnel. When they are in nickel on first and second down, they are first in EPA per play. So that is where I think I think the the Vikings team has kind of tweaked in their I think they're getting into more we're gonna go twelve for about a third of the snaps, we're gonna go twenty one about, you know, twenty percent of the snaps, and then we'll be eleven the rest of the snaps. And I think that's a good formula for them. And I think we really saw it against the Patriots team, and I think that's gonna translate against this Jets team. I also think that I don't know if it's Hawkinson's presence or just is a coincidence that defenses have really started playing the Vikings a little bit differently coverage wise. Mm-hmm. And Kirk Cousins has started playing a little bit differently. So weeks one through nine before Hawkinson got there. So weeks one through eight. Okay. The Vikings were seeing man coverage on 34% of dropbacks, okay. which was the sixth highest rate in the NFL since he got there. So weeks nine through 12, it's 26%, which is 13th. In the NFL. So eight percentage points drop, which I don't know if that's simply because he's there, if it's a difference in the amount of personnel. They play the Cowboys and the Patriots. I mean, those aren't. And that's why I didn't think it was some sort of coincidence because playing the Cowboys and the Patriots during that stretch, sometimes that can be skewed. You're playing one team that plays. You, you you play against who plays you play against the Vikings and yeah. you the all those numbers get skewed because they don't play a single snap of man right but you, New England is in there so I don't think that's the case so that's one thing to look at and then the other one that is truly shocking okay so weeks one through eight Kirk Cousins is averaging he's thirty seventh of 40, 40 quarterbacks in air yards per attempt it was like six like under yeah. six okay only twelve point nine percent of Kirk Cousins' throws in weeks one through eight when at least 15 yards in the air. 12.9. That was 39th among 40 quarterbacks in the NFL. That's got to be low. 39th, okay? Weeks nine through 12, Yeah. 24% of his throws are going at least 15 yards. It's double. Yeah. They are taking double the amount of intermediate shots 
yes. as they were over the first eight weeks of the season since TJ Hawkinson got there. That 24% is eighth in the NFL. So he went from being one of the least aggressive quarterbacks in the league over yep. the first eight weeks of the season to now being one of the 10 most aggressive quarterbacks in the league consistently over the last month. And you can feel that. Mm-hmm. When you watch them, that's what was so frustrating about them. I can't remember which week it was where we talked about them, but I'm just sitting there. I watched the Dolphins game, and it was the week after that probably. And we were expressing our frustrations just about how mediocre the Vikings felt. And that, to me, was the biggest problem on offense. It's like they, there's just no ambition to where they're trying to throw the football. And when you have Justin Jefferson <laughs> and yeah, you, you have an, a passing game that we expect a lot more out of, it was frustrating to watch. And yep. now the fact that they're willing to push it a little bit, it's like, oh, shit, like yep. I can get on board with this. And then yep. when you combine that with having a guy like Jefferson and you watch the Patriots game and he's just all over the place. Right. He's in the backfield. He's in motion. Right. He's in orb motion. They're lining him up in the backfield, motioning him out to a bunch. They're just doing so many different ways to get information mm-hmm. and to potentially hide him from any sort of cloud corner, whatever you want to end up doing. So yeah. I'm curious now, what is the Jets plan for him? Right. You know, are you going to cloud his side every single time you're in zone? You're going to put sauce on him every time you're a man. How much man do you want to play? How much yeah. man are you comfortable playing? Like those are the questions that teams are going to be faced with now when now there's more than one or more than two reliable pass catching options because that has changed the way the teams are playing against the Vikings. Uh, and that's what's so it matters so much having two to three weapons in your offense and not yeah. everyone has to be a pro bowl all pro type just having good solid players Adam Thielen, TJ Hawkinson, Justin Jefferson's a pretty damn good three receiving weapons as along with Dalvin Cook in the backfield and that it just you have answers because if you run zone, okay, we can find a guy that will get open or man coverage. We have Justin Jefferson who can beat pretty much anyone. I think it is really interesting because the Jets and I, I got I did not watch the Bears game. I no that throwing that game. You're out, good, buddy. Yeah, I watched the Patriots game and I watched the game before that. Is that uh, you know Sauce lines up on the offenses right? That is Sauce Gardner is playing all pro level corner right now. He lines up on the offenses right almost every snap. This is a Seahawks. DNA defense. Yeah. Ulbrich and Salah, that's what they do. That's the Richard Sherman thing. That quarterbacks throw to the right. They're right-handed. They throw that way. So it makes sense why they do that. They run quarters and man coverage. And then, so if you know that, I'm watching this game plan, and I'm game planning to see. I'm Kevin O'Connell. I'm watching this. I think we see a lot of Justin Jefferson on the left. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what how, like you said, they are getting creative and moving them around. You saw the glimpses of it in the red zone with this Vikings offense. And it's like, ooh, okay. This is you're getting creative. Oh, this is cool. You're understanding how defenses are using Jefferson, and you're popping open Adam Thielen on stuff. So I'm, I think we're going to see a lot of Jefferson on the left. And I don't know. I, I this the I I thought I was going to look at these stats going into this and thought the Vikings offense was going to just have this boon of stats getting better. And it's like no, they've actually gotten worse overall, but they have played a lot better defenses. Commanders, Bills, Cowboys, and Patriots is kind of a murderer's row of defenses. Yes, but that Patriots game. I think if you're a Vikings fan, it gives you a lot of hope that they're finding some cool stuff to do. What Hawkinson does and unlocks so much and what using – why – I know I'm a caricature myself when I bring up, oh, 12 personnel and how they use it. But they're finding – they're using tempo. They're shifting and motioning. They're using these different little little tweaks to just manipulate defenses, and they're doing it really well. And also, another thing using Jefferson, how about like the one-man bubble stuff they're running Yes, and smoke. It's just instant offense. And that, that's it's such instant a, offense. 
it's just f- figuring out ways to really capture the value of a number one receiver, like a yes. true number one receiver. Yep. It's just like it, watching offenses that are built through that player. Yep. That's what he is. And I think that yep. they're starting to figure out what that should look like. And now they can dictate a little bit more because Hawkinson is there and gives them one more pass catching option. They grab which the pen is back. hugely important. Yes. They, that's they exactly grab it right. Back. Yep. And I, I do think that it's funny. Remember, we talked about this before the season started. What can you really learn from the stuff that the Rams were doing? What does copying the Rams really look like? Yeah. And the tempo part of it yes. is the real part of it. Yes. It's about catching people in personnel groupings yep. or situationally and being able to keep that unit on the field and just hammer it over and over and over again. So even yep. though it's 12, which looks different than the stuff that the Rams do, there's still enough shared DNA with who the Rams are and how they want to manipulate defenses. And you're seeing that Such shine through point. what the Vikings are right now. Such a good point. It's the same philosophy. It's just different yes. ways of getting there. And, and yep. they had the one snap. I just want to bring up the one snap of the Patriots. This is all of this in one one play is they ran a pick play. I call it the wall. I call it the Stan Van Gundy build of epic wall play. <laughs> and you've seen the Rams run it for years. They usually have Robert Woods pop out the other side. I've seen the Packers run it. I've seen the 49ers run it with Kittle. And what the Vikings did against the Patriots with it, it was like a third and three. And they had, they came out. They had Dalvin Cook as the lone receiver. They had Justin Jefferson in the backfield. And then they went Cheetah. What Cheetah per, uh, snap count is as soon as the center grabs the ball, he snaps it. So you don't. Even, there's not even a ready go. It's it's quicker than quick cadence, and so they did that. So that is everything. What you just said. It's cadence. It's using tempo, and it's using Justin Jefferson and lining him up in smart ways. So right there, that one little play was like a, a, a nice snapshot of what this Vikings team is starting to figure out and doing. The other last thing worth mentioning, personnel wise. The Jets' defensive line against the Vikings' offensive line, especially <laughs> if Derisaw does not play, right. is a significant advantage Huge for advantage. the Jets. I mean, the Patriots are not built like that. I know Judon has insane sack numbers and whatever, but top to bottom, they do not have the front that this Jets team has, even without Sheldon Rankins. So if they can control that matchup over the course of the game, not just taking advantage of a back of left tackle, but across the board, yeah. consistently winning, which they can then I think that the Vikings are going to have a lot harder time in this game than they did against New England, even if the Patriots' stats overall defensively have been very good this year. Quinn Williams is a matchup problem for, I would say, 99% of offenses. I, I truly – Quinn Williams is playing like – Aaron Donald's hurt now, so let's just yeah. remove Aaron Donald from the equation. Quinn Williams and Jeffrey Simmons are probably the two best – Chris Jones. So Chris Quinn Williams, yep. Chris Jones – Quinn Williams, Chris Jones, Jefferson, John Allen. <laughs> there's a lot of All them. Right, right so, now. <laughs> so there's a, there's like a tier at the top, right? Yeah. Where like those are the game wrecking interior yes. defensive linemen. Yes. He is in that group. He is a Easy. member of the best interior defensive lineman conversation in the league. The right guard for the Vikings oh. is is one of oh. one of the. I don't want to say worst. He is one of the weakest links on a go. relevant team in Cut. the NFL. So. Now you have Quinn and Williams going against that. And if you want to take advantage of that all game, you certainly can if you're yeah. Robert Sala and Jeff Ulrich. So just something yeah. to look at there. I think the Vikings will be running to the outside a lot. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there you go. There you go. All right. That is all we have on that one. We're going to get to our conversation with Kalen next about the re- return of Deshaun Watson, him going back to Houston, some of the reporting that she did this week. So let's get to our conversation with Kalen after a quick break. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, it's time now to welcome from The Athletic, someone who reported on the Deshaun Watson return earlier this week, Kaylin Kaler. Kaylin, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Hey, Robert. Thank you. All right, so before we get into this weekend and what's going to happen with Deshaun Watson moving forward, I wanted to very briefly just recap how we got here and just revisit some of the facts associated with this situation, right? Deshaun Watson is back this week. The last game he played was January 3rd, 2021. So it will have been almost 700 days, almost two full years since we saw, well, since we last saw Deshaun Watson play football. And just digging in again to some of the numbers here, just because I think it's important. 26 lawsuits filed against Deshaun Watson by women who've said that they were sexually assaulted or harassed by him during massage sessions. New York, the New York Times found that he booked Massages with 66 different women in less than 18 months. The first woman to come forward was Ashley Solis in April 2021. Two dozen other women have joined her since then. I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, 23 of the 24 women that Tony Busby represents have settled with Watson. Yep. Lauren Baxley is the one woman who did not. She wrote about her experience in the Daily Beast earlier. You quoted her in your story. I wanted to read... Uh, something that she wrote in her piece and that you quoted in yours. She said, Watson still refuses to admit that he harassed and committed indecent assault against me. Any settlement offer he has made has been a dismissal of his evil actions. And I know that unless there is authoritative intervention, he will continue his destructive behavior. Along with 
Watson settlements, the Texans have also settled with 30 women who sued the organization. The New York Times has reported that someone from the organization provided Watson with an NDA, and the team arranged for him to have a membership and accommodations at a local Houston hotel and club. Through all this, two grand juries decided in Texas not to move forward with criminal charges. After that happened, teams in the NFL moved forward with their pursuit of Watson. Ultimately, the Browns gave up numerous first-round picks and more and elected to give him a fully guaranteed contract in the realm of $250 million. The initial suspension from Sue L. Robinson, the third-party discipline officer from the NFL, was six games. She said that his behavior was egregious and predatory, but also classified that the allegations against him were nonviolent sexual contact. The league appealed the suspension. Ultimately, they settled with the PA on a ruling that gave him 11 games, a $5 million fine, evaluation from behavioral experts, and a treatment program, which the league must have believed that he met all those requirements if he's being reinstated. The last time that we heard from Deshaun Watson, which was shortly after a scripted apology he gave before a preseason game, he told reporters, I have always stood on my innocence and always said that I've never assaulted anyone or disrespected anyone, and I will continue to stand on that. Have I missed anything? Or do you feel like that is a proper summation of how we've come to this point? I think that's proper. I think the only key thing that I think is really important that I would add is a distinction where after the Browns traded for him, he has faced three more lawsuits yes. after that happened. So to think that the Browns really did an investigation here, they and uh, GM Andrew Barry said publicly when they um, traded for him that he was confident in Deshaun the man. So to think that they really did work and, um, you know, knew everything that he, that Watson uh, is being accused of uh, is it, kind of a joke because or they were fine with knowing he was going to face more civil lawsuits. I don't know. I mean, either way you come down on that. He's been sued three more times since the trade happened. So um, that I think is an important distinction because. To me, I keep thinking like this story is not over and I don't know where this story ends, but I don't think that we're at the end of it just because he served his suspension and he's coming back. There may be more lawsuits to come um, there. As you pointed out, there is still one uh, or there's two active lawsuits at the moment because the most recent one came in October. So there are two active civil lawsuits against him right now. The one you pointed out with Lauren Baxley, which um, is one of the original uh, 24 women that Tony Busby represented. And she's the only one who didn't settle among that group. Um, her stance is the same that uh, the next thing for that case would be to set a hearing date, to set a trial date and move forward. So I think we can expect that, you know, barring any change in Watson's camp that would, you know, satisfy Lauren and, and lead to a settlement. I think we can expect that one to actually, you know, see a courtroom, which is, for me, kind of exciting because I'd like to see how this actually does play out with a jury, um, with both sides present, um, and we get to hear both sides of the story because the grand jury proceedings are very, very, very quiet and private, and um, not a lot has come out as to what happened inside those proceedings. You wrote in your piece today, the, the lead of your story, I, I really appreciate it. You said that not writing about Deshaun Watson during the 11 weeks of his suspension has been a relief. And I think that a lot of people in sports media and that cover the NFL would share those feelings, but maybe wouldn't express them. And I want to talk about how we're going to talk about Deshaun Watson, mm -hmm. both in a general way 
is people who discuss the NFL and specifically on this show. You mentioned that Andrew Barry and the Browns said that they did their work on Deshaun the person. And I've said this multiple times in, in relation to this situation, and I'll say it again. The Browns made a bet, and multiple other teams made the same bet or would have been willing to make the same bet, that they were going to take their medicine initially when they made this decision. They were going to have to take the public flogging that was going to happen, and eventually they would get through it. Deshaun Watson would start playing again, and people would forget. They would start talking about him solely as a football player and what he was doing and what his on-field accomplishments looked like. That's the bet that they've made because other people and other organizations about other players have made a similar bet in the past, and they've usually been proven correct. So Deshaun Watson will play again this weekend. He will play against the Texans, which is just its incredible that that's the timing that ultimately ended up happening. And when you're watching him and when you're ultimately going to start talking about him again and trying to compartmentalize or contextualize or weave together these two ideas of what he is as a football player and what he's doing and the ways that we should talk about and remember everything that brought us to this point, how are you going to try to balance those two things? Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, I don't think... I don't think the right answer is to like completely ignore him and refuse to watch him and go on strike because the reality is like, he's going to be there for a long time. And, you know, based off of his previous play, uh, he may face a little bit of rust in the early stages, but I do think he's going to return to form and it's going to be hard to ignore him as, as a figure in the NFL. So I think it's just, um, you know, remembering and not, ignoring all that happened. I think, um, you know, I don't know if like every reference needs to be, Oh, you know, and he faced this many lawsuits and these were the allegations and he also served his suspension. I don't know if that's hard to sort of include in every single reference. It definitely is. Yeah. But I do think like maybe at the top of conversations or, you know, once in a story, you know, it's worth including that because, at least for this year in particular, because it's still very fresh. And like I said, I don't think the story is over and he does, you know, the, the reality is he does have two lawsuits that are still active against him. So if anything, I think it's worth bringing up those two lawsuits because those are still happening right now. And one is very recent. So he's not out of the woods. It may seem like he is completely out of the woods because the NFL has approved his return to the Browns and he will be playing quarterback on Sunday, but he's really not out of the woods. Um, so I would, I would say, you know, bringing up those two lawsuits, I think is important. And it's probably something that I'll do if I end up writing about him. Um, if, you know, the Browns make a push in, in the late half of this season. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the stories from Sunday's game are going to be very much about uh, all of you know, as I said in my piece, like the, the only word I could really describe it with was saga, but that doesn't even, it's not even a proper word. Yeah, there isn't it's, a proper word. I, I don't know what the singular noun would be to right. describe what's happening. It's like crazy. There's no word for it. So like, I think a lot of the stories on Sunday are going to be very much about that and not much about football, especially because I'm sure the Browns will handily beat the Texans, which are like one of probably the worst team in the NFL right now. And just, um, you know, a good, a good opponent for the Browns to face in Watson's return, because it's probably a guaranteed win. Um, So I'm assuming on Sunday, a lot of the stories are going to be about 
how we got here, kind of the conversation that we're having. I think it, all the stories from Sunday are going to have that context, but then I think the week after that, it's going to be gone. And I don't know that it should be gone necessarily until, as I said, there is an end to this, but I, it's we. I don't know how to like put an end date on it. It's, I don't know when it ends. Um, and as Lauren said for Lauren, it doesn't end for her until she gets an apology from him. And the only apology he's given uh, was a very vague one to Brown's uh, preseason TV, as you mentioned, and he reversed course literally like, I think it was six or eight days later when the suspension came down, when the appeal came down. So he's never, he's never even admitted anything. And I think one part of my story that I thought was a really good takeaway when I talked to Rita Smith, who is a, advisor to the NFL on matters of domestic violence and sexual assault. She's been uh, working with the league since the Ray Rice incident in 2014. And one thing that she said, I was, I was kind of telling her my experience. I went to Brown's camp in August and I was, it was right after the judge Robinson's decision came out. And I was just asking players, did you read the decision? Not asking them to come down with an opinion one way or the other, or to, you know, talk bad about the leader of their team But just yes or no, did you read the decision? And all of them said no. Um, And then, you know, I I asked why for a few and they're like, it's none of my business. Um, You know, the typical line. And I totally understand why they have to say this publicly. But when I told this to Rita, she was like, you know, that's really troubling because there's a lot you can learn from reading that decision. You don't have to decide that Deshaun Watson is guilty of all counts and he's an evil predator and he should never play football again. Like you don't need to come down and decide that, but by reading the decision, especially as a teammate of his, you can see how he may have gotten into situations like this and how he may have had a misunderstanding of what was going on, of what consent is of, you know, how his presence may be threatening to someone um, or his, the imbalance of power. Like there is a lot you can learn from reading about the allegations against him without saying he's a hundred percent guilty. Like you can just learn a lot from that. And so for Rita, she was like, yeah, I wish like the, I wish his teammates, I wish NFL players, you know, and I'm sure some players out there did read it. And um, I hope that they did, but her takeaway was that, There's a lot that we can learn from this. It's not that he should never play football again, but it's that there's so much that we can learn from it. And Watson himself has just never even approached that place where he can say, you know, I have learned some things from this about my actions and how to be better. Like we're not even there yet. And I think that's the end point that a lot of people are looking for that I'm not sure we're ever going to get to. Contrition is a part of this process. It's This is very naughty and tangled when you're trying to figure out how we discuss this, how we move forward, because you're right. I mean, he should be able to seek gainful employment in the NFL at some right. point. I mean, it's that that's a given. I think that no one's asking for that. But also, if we're going to the way that we're going to talk about him, I think that when you look at some of similar situations, Mina Kimes did such a great job about five years ago. She wrote a story about Tyreek Hill. And mm-hmm. it was the first year that Tyreek Hill really, you know, came on the scene and was an electrifying player and was really important to the Chiefs' success. And she wrote about just how we discuss a player like Tyreek Hill with his background. And think about the way that we talk about Tyreek Hill now, or the way that most people do, or some people yeah. do. It's never considered, you know, like no. he has a podcast. 
You know, he has a nickname right. that people call him by and some of that makes me pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. And in what she was discussing is in something similar to kind of what you said about, do we do an aside every single time? Even in, when you consider the medium that becomes difficult, like in writing, you can use an M dash, you can put it in there if you want yeah. to. When we're discussing this, it's going to be really difficult and kind of unfair to every single time we mention his name, be like, by the way, he was suspended for 11 games this year because 26 women you know, sued him right. for allegations of sexual impropriety during massage sessions. That's right. not possible, but right. we also don't want to never mention it or don't want to ignore some of that context because that's exactly the bet the Browns made at the start of this. Right. And so that's where it becomes difficult. And I just think that Asking for some signs of contrition and an attempt at rehabilitation and a, an admittance of wrongdoing and a desire to get better and understanding the harm that you've caused, to me, is part of the process if we're going to move beyond talking about this all the time because that's necessary. Like It's absolutely necessary and it hasn't happened yet. So that's a big yep. part of it. And I also think that it's about understanding that you can talk about someone as a player and what he's doing on the field without celebrating that person. And right. I think that is an important line to draw here is that it's very easy to discuss in pretty forensic terms what the Browns have done on a Sunday and what Deshaun Watson did as a member of the Cleveland Browns. And that's going to have to happen because he is their right. quarterback and he's probably going to play pretty well considering the circumstances he's being dropped into there. But that doesn't mean that we have to celebrate what that means. And it doesn't mean that Browns fans have to feel good about that because that's another complicating factor of this. You know, I've thought about that a lot this entire time. What if the Browns ultimately win a Super Bowl with Deshaun Watson next year, the year after that? If you're a member of that organization, if you're a member of that fan base, if you're a player on that team, how do you feel about that? Is that worth it? Do you care? Does it ultimately matter that he did all these things and was accused of all these things? Or is it about the ultimate result? Because I think that teams have shown that to them it's about the ultimate result and i think mm -hmm. those are just all of the different things that we're going to have to consider and measure and think about as we have these conversations moving forward and sunday is just the first entry into that and you know, sunday is complicated is the wrong word but sunday is going to be tinged with this very real situation this reality that 10 of those women at least have committed to being there in a suite at the game. And Tony Busby said, which I think is really important and I think makes a lot of sense and is kind of what we're talking about here, everyone else wants to move on, we can't. And I think that they are a physical representation of that idea on Sunday. But beyond Sunday, I think we have to move beyond that physical representation and understand that this does matter for a lot of people and the ramifications of it are still very real, even if we want to get back to football ultimately, or some people do. I don't really. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, so as far as covering it, um, the Browns had two national games this season, um, one on Amazon, one on ESPN. Amazon really ignored it completely. Like they talked about the that the fact that he was not there and that he was suspended, but then did not give any reason as to what he had done or what, what part of the personal conduct policy he violated. So they kind of talked around it. ESPN did a really good job when they were on um, Monday Night Football later. They really laid it out specifically. They said the number of lawsuits, they said massage therapy sessions. They specifically said exactly what he did in maybe like two sentences. So 
I thought that was a really well done uh, by ESPN of just like not kind of talking around it, but just being very specific and getting it out of the way and then kind of moving on with the conversation. So I thought they did a really good job. Um, and then I will say too, like, as you pointed out, the women being at the game, uh, I, I reported that on Tuesday and I, my mentions were absolutely insane. Um, people, first of all, the amount of Browns fans who have paid for Twitter blue is, is astounding. Um, it's, it's like a, the Venn diagram. What is it? A circle. Um, so anyways, so my mentions were crazy. No one could understand that. And so I'll just say right here, like if you have trouble understanding why women who sued Deshaun Watson, who accused him of these things uh, might want to go to the same place that Deshaun Watson is at. It's simply a display of power is what it comes down to. They want to be there so that you know, they, they never had their day in the courtroom because they settled with him because they were, most of them have settled with him, but they want to show up because it's in their hometown. Number one, it's in their town. He's coming back to their city. So Busby had a suite. He invited them. He is not forcing any of them to come. This was a, if you want to come, you can come. 10 of them have expressed interest in coming. You know, the rest have not. And, you know, that's not how they cope. But for some of these women, this is part of their coping process and they want to be there um, and see, you know, just to be present and to take a little bit of that power back. So I just want to say that for the record, because there was a lot of people on Twitter who could not understand and somehow took the fact that the women would be going to the game as a sign that they are lying and it's all a money grab. Um, And then I'll just say one more thing too about um, about like feeling like there hasn't been any closure and about how hard it is just to kind of move on from this. I think um, we saw, not only did we see Watson not express any contrition or like willingness to learn about how he got into this situation, but we also didn't see any of that from NFL teams. Um, And I had a club executive who was very familiar with the trade market for Watson um, who expressed to me, his frustration over the fact that so many of these teams who were interested in him, so many of the decision makers just really wrote this off as a fetish. Oh, we all have our fetishes. This is just his. Um, so as soon as he didn't face criminal charges, it was just, okay, yeah, we're all free to go it's after green light. him. Like, yeah, there's no other, there's no other problems here. We're just going to go get him. So that was something that to this executive was very frustrating. And he, he felt like he was alone in being concerned about, Um, what Watson had done. And that really surprised him because I think he probably felt like we were in a place now in 2022 um, where there have been so many instances of domestic violence and sexual assault in the NFL and the NFL has put resources and money towards trying to be better in that area. I think he thought we would be in a different place and that this would matter more to decision makers in the NFL. And the reality is it didn't. Kaylin, I really appreciate the time. Um, this is going to be something that obviously we're going to work through in real time f- on Sunday and in the weeks, months, years to come. And uh, I really appreciate you helping us provide some context and, and untangle what is you know, obviously a very naughty situation. So really, really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Robert. All right, we're back. We have one more game that we want to talk about. And then we're going to get to fourth screen and get out of here. We're going to skip picks today. Uh, because of the conversation with K1, the show's a little, run a little bit long. We will tweet those out so there's a record of them. It is also slowly getting dark here. And I <laughs> see that. So I'm just slowly getting darker <laughs> as we get go through this show. All right, last game to chat about here. The Giants and Washington. 
is a huge game in the NFC playoff race. I mean, it's absolutely massive. It's December 1st. (laughs) So Austin Mock from The Athletic, if you guys have not checked out some of the work he's done about playoff probabilities, he's done so much in that area. And right now, according to his numbers, the Giants have a 53.7% chance to make the playoffs. Okay. Washington, I almost said the name. Washington has a 57.7% chance to make the playoffs. Wow. So it's like 50-50. And so this game is obviously huge yeah. because if Washington wins this game and the Giants lose, then the Giants cannot win the tiebreaker with Washington, right? So then it would go to division record, I'm pretty sure, would be the okay. second tiebreaker, even for wild card between division teams, which is kind of weird, but that's my understanding yeah, of the rules. Yeah. But – the Seahawks already have the tiebreaker over the Giants. So them having that little trump card is another complicating factor in this. I, I wanted to ask you this because I genuinely am curious about it. Who do you think it's more important to to make the playoffs oh. this season? Like for the state of their franchise, the Giants or Washington? Washington. I think so too. Yeah, I think this is all house's money for New York. I I think I know, but it's so hard to tell yourself that. It is, and I also especially when you're in the building too. Like you're like, yes. Oh, you see that play? Oh, imagine being a quality control coach and you get a bonus that's basically one third of your salary. Like if you make the playoffs. Oh yeah, you don't want to hear about oh we're rebuilding. We got to wait another year. Like (laughs) no, let's make the playoffs. Let's make a run, buddy. I think that's also true. And also, I've talked to coaches about this in the past, just about what it means to have some instantaneous success. And obviously, it hasn't yes. really mattered for Washington. You know, they made right. the playoffs in Ron Rivera's first year, and it's not yep. like it's been great there since. But talking to people like in LA, right, when they made the playoffs that first year yeah. under McVay, yeah. and some of the autonomy that creates for you as a staff, right, right. when you're going to ownership and you can just be like, we want to do this. We want yeah. to revamp X area of the franchise. That's when point. you win 10 games in year one, sometimes that sell can be a little bit easier. That's so I don't think it ultimately matters, you know, for the long term health of the Giants. I think for the people in the building, it certainly does and all of that. Yeah. But I think for Washington, in terms of guys keeping jobs, yes. this may extend some shelf life if they manage <laughs> to sneak in here. They didn't trade for Carson Wentz to rebuild. <laughs> that was a push move. Yeah. At a weird time to do it. That the fact that the backup's playing better. Uh, no, the other thing too, that's such a good point, especially with ownership. Everyone expects, everyone thinks every owner just writes a blank check. No, no, at, not like that at all. Bill Belichick is able to do what he does because Bob Kraft gives him a blank check. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You sure? You want that? Yeah, sure. Oh, you want this? Oh, you want to keep 20 guys on injured reserve and we'll pay injury settlements? Yeah, sure. We'll do that. That It does give you credibility, especially with the staff. You know, but you need, group. you need to earn you, that. You need to earn that You have to earn it. Yes, you do. And it's, just, and it's also, like you said, credibility in the locker room. Players go, hey, we're getting better players and we already made the playoffs with this group. Like, it does. It, it does. There is some buildup with that. So no, that's a great point. If we're, I know we're probably jumping to four screen. I do have one schematic thing about this game, which oh, I no, thought absolutely. was interesting. Okay, is that the Commanders' defense, which has been very enjoyable to watch, we've broken them down a few times. Is they do have a weakness against designed quarterback runs, and Marcus Mariota was getting after him last week. He had six of them last week. The gains on those six, and these were all not. These were not like third and extra longs or anything. These are all designed runs on like second and five, first and 10. 11 yards, 8 yards, 7 yards, 11 yards, 14 yards, and then negative two at the very end in the red zone. You know who is second and first downs per rush rate after only Josh Allen? 
Daniel Jones. He's six in design rushes. So I don't know. If you want a prop bet, I guess, maybe look at some Daniel Jones over rushing yards. You know, uh, uh, we'll give one little pick. I'll give that one. I know we're not going to do it. Another thing is Derek Forrest rocks. Uh, uh, he's a really fun player. He's going to be, a, uh, he's a he's really awesome, good young player. Man. And again, just talking he's about a, why this team has been better than we expected yep. them to be getting contributions from guys up. like that are so important. Yep. The one other just football element of this game, I think is worth watching the giants getting some guys back on the offensive line. Evan Neal returning, you know, they've been really banged up in that area. I think about how many backups played last week, you know, Feliciano, I think has been limited in practice this yeah. week. So he could be back. And you think about what that Washington front looks like and just how yes. dominant that they've been this season. Uh, they just ran out of gas that Giants team last week yep. against Dallas and getting some starting caliber offensive linemen back, I think goes a yes. long way in Absolutely. preventing that from happening again against this team. So Absolutely. it's going to be again, another really important game, fun another one. fun one. Be watching this, but it is time to get to fourth screen before we get out of here. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are, it is our choices. All right, this one is from Charles Williams. He said, Listen, it should be Jags Lions. That's the most fun game, but hear me out. <laughs> Steelers Falcons will be an interesting game, not because it's good football, mind you. Oh, no, no, no. Quite the opposite. It seems weird to complain about the Steelers after they've been good for like my entire life. And especially after they somehow made the playoffs with the decaying right arm of Ben Roethlisberger. But things are different now in Pittsburgh. We have a dynamic wide receiver who is always open and our offensive coordinator doesn't even know how, doesn't even know about it. How cool is that? <laughs> he also doesn't seem to, he also doesn't seem to know what the middle of the field is either. It's like nope. watching my high school offense. We did a straight up no frills play action pass on Monday night and I almost shit myself from pure shock. <laughs> They let Trubisky go all summer and preseason, taking all the first team snaps, yep. only to turn to pick it anyway, even though Trubisky wasn't playing horribly. No plan. Now, instead of getting a top seven pick to pair with the Bears second, thanks for that, by the way. I've never seen a six foot four inch receiver play like he's five eight. We're going to stupidly win a bunch of ugly games at the end and end up picking 17th anyway. Mm -hmm. It's going to be horrible. And I hate the Falcons for what they've done to Kyle Pitts. Thanks. Love the show. I like that. I, I love I love anger on those. Those are those are the best. And I man, it's so true though. Imagine if yeah. you're a Steelers fan and you're just seeing that top five pick and yep. just that version of being mediocre or bad as a potentiality, and then it gets ripped away from you as you potentially steal a couple of these terrible games down the stretch, and you're picking seventeenth <laughs> again. Mike Tomlin giveth, Mike Tomlin, Mike Tomlin taketh away. He's allergic to top 10 picks. <laughs> All right. As we mentioned, we're going to put our picks out on Twitter. We do not have time to do them today. No Thursday night recap. I am in New York. I have a work thing tonight that I'm running off to. So I will be watching that game, but I will not be in a position to recap it. Also, game. I would be doing it in the dark. <laughs> So I don't apparently, right? no, that's your lighting right now. That, this is the lighting I have in the hotel room right now. It's four o'clock. All right. Winter is a disease. Okay. <laughs> so please, if you have not subscribed to the YouTube channel, you can do that in the description of the podcast below. If you're watching this on YouTube, obviously, you know where to do it. Please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. We will be back on Sunday night to recap week 13. I want to thank Kaylin again for her time and everything that she provided to the show today. Really do yes, appreciate that. Please enjoy your weekend. Please enjoy the game tonight. We'll talk to you guys on Sunday night. This was the Athletic Football Show.